There it goes, deep into center field. Way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in Astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shot. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to episode 7 of Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Ragupathy. I'm Jacob Wessels, and today we are joined by my stepbrother, Noah Averick. Noah, how are you? I am just the best that I have ever been and ever will be. Thank you, Jacob. Yeah, so Noah and I are actually sitting next to each other on opposite sides of a wall because we had this great plan to record with a microphone between us, and it was going to be, you know, intimate and personal and next to each other. We couldn't figure the technology out. So instead, we are in the same house, but recording in opposite rooms, as one does. And so we'll see how that works, and hopefully we'll you know, figure that out in the future. I have a professional microphone now, so if I can ever get it working, you know, production quality through the roof. Uh, you can try the professional microphone thing between the two of you if you make a podcast catered to dolphins and dogs. I was emitting a, like a high-pitched shriek, just like a banshee wail. <laughs> it was truly disappointing, but I think uh, I am much more disappointed than Jacob in terms of the intimacy factor because I just, I love Jacob and I need him close to me 24-7. I don't think he feels the same way about me. No, but you still agreed to come on the podcast, even despite some confusion about the podcast, Noah. That is, that is true. That is true. So we're kind of, you know, returning from a, a little two-week hiatus we've had here. I mean, we released an episode last week, but we had recorded it about two weeks ago because we're finishing up finals. And, and so Vic and I are both no longer sophomores, and Noah is no longer a college student. So in a way, this is the world's worst graduation party. <laughs> it's uh, it's better, than, uh, better than most, to be honest with you. I was at a graduation party today. I had a great time, but most would look at a five-person, everyone six feet apart graduation party as a failure, um, which when you compare it to the normal one, it, it might be. But the podcast is, it's, it's a, truly an honor and a privilege, so thank you. Well, we're glad to have you here. So our theme today, we've actually, this is our first podcast where we've actually got a theme going. And our theme yeah, here, there you go. No, what are you going to say? Uh, so yeah, we, 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 a lot will be changing moving forward, as, as you'll see, and as we'll introduce you to. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, this is just getting going. We're, we've expanded the powers a little bit now, but we're, we're making sure that uh, we don't box ourselves in. We, we've got plenty of ideas circulating in uh, all of our pitch meetings. So today's theme is making the case. So we're each going to make a, a Hall of Fame case. I think we've got Two baseball players and a football player on the docket. Soriano with a good lead on a 2-0 pitch. There he goes. And he is in there without a throw. And that's number 40 for Soriano. And he joins Jose Canseco, <laughs> Barry Bonds, and Alex Rodriguez as the only 40-40 men in the history of baseball. When I was younger, I kind of just automatically thought the best player on all of the marquee franchises were destined to be Hall of Famers. And, and so that led to a lot of weird Hall of Famers in my book, but perhaps one of the weirdest was Alfonso Soriano, because he was kind of the face of the Chicago Cubs, and my dad had grown up a Cubs fan, and hear all about the curse and whatnot. So the Cubs, you know, were a prominent team, and they were kind of good in like the 2007 to 2008 range. And Alfonso Soriano was the face of that resurgence. 
So, you know, growing up as a baseball fan, he was always just a Hall of Famer to me. That was just kind of what he was. And then, you know, the more I learned about him, the more I was like, oh, well, he's not a Hall of Famer. And then if you look back at it, you think to yourself, he was much better than I remember. And he was much better for a much longer time than I remember. And I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about Alfonso Soriano is, is you can play a game with bit players. And you can say, well, at what point in their career did you realize they weren't going to be Hall of Famer? So someone comes up, they have massive potential, and then you go, okay, you know, they had a few bad years. They, they you know, after they turned 30, they really fell off a cliff. They started off really slow and they didn't start playing well until they were 30. And, and, and so you kind of point out when that person wasn't playing like a Hall of Famer. And I think you can make the case that Alfonso Soriano never really had that kind of, I mean, he had a drop in production, but his drop in production wasn't as big as I think people think it was. And so he kind of was good for a long time. He was good for over a decade. He had a solid career past the age of 30, and he had a bunch of impressive records. And I think that's kind of what you're looking for when you when you look for a Hall of Famer. He's got some black ink there, and he's got some some pretty good MVP finishes. You know, a third place, a sixth place, uh, a twelfth. I think if if you know one of those had been a more fortunate year and he had hoisted the award, we might be talking about him completely differently. Yeah, I mean, he's playing in like the you know not the heart of the steroid era, but the tail end of it. And, and he's got, you know, a lot of much bigger, much stronger players. And, and he's up there competing with them, you know, for the you know, MVP award. And, you know, considering where he started, that's actually really surprising. Because Alfonso Soriano was not a, a big-time prospect when he was a young kid growing up in the Dominican Republic from the famed town of San Pedro de Macorís. Um, you know, a lot of other guys were getting attention, and he wasn't one of those guys. And so when like all the kids were getting signed up into academies, not one major league academy offered him a contract. So instead, he signed with the Hiroshima Carp in Japan. And so at the age of 16, he was playing in the academy for the Hiroshima Carp. And I mean, they were one of the first Japanese teams to have a Dominican academy. It's a, it's a very interesting story along those lines. But eventually, he makes his way to Japan and he just hates it. Because the way the Japanese approach baseball to him is just way too strict. It's way too rigid. They don't want to have fun. It's practice all the time. It's fundamentals all the time. They don't want him trying to hit home runs. They're trying to teach him how to bunt. He, just, he doesn't like any of it. But the problem is he signed a contract in Japan for five years. And so he's, he's stuck there for, for the foreseeable future. But um, he takes advantage of a fascinating loophole that has since been closed. Um, and he was the reason they closed the loophole. If you, in, at the time, if you were tired, in Japan, you were granted free agency and you could sign with anybody. And so Alfonso Soriano at the age of 20 retired in Japan. And he was like, you know what? I'm gonna retire from baseball. I'm moving to the United States. And the carp were very unhappy. They were like going around saying they would sue any major league team that tried to sign him. But eventually no legal action was taken. And that was kind of the last straw for, for Japanese baseball for them to implement the posting system. So that was, you know, an early role Alfonso Soriano played in larger baseball history, you know, kind of how the modern posting system came to be. Yeah, didn't, didn't Nomo do that also? He had to do yeah, it was the same agent who, who allowed, who figured out the loophole with Nomo, did it again with Alfonso Soriano, and that was kind of the last straw. That it was first Nomo and then Soriano. I didn't even know Japanese teams signed Dominican players. 
Yeah, I was shocked to find it as well. When I saw that he, I saw on his Wikipedia page that he played for the Hiroshima Carp. And I was like, interesting. He made a late career try of it in Japan. I did not know it was where it started. And that was one of the most fascinating things to me. And so, you know, he signs in the, so he, he comes over to America. He becomes one of the hottest prospects. And, and, and everyone wants to sign him. And, and you know, he, he does a tryout. And after just this one tryout that all these major league teams go to, they're offering him contracts on the spot. Cleveland offered him a contract on the spot. Uh, I think the Brewers offered him a contract on the spot. But the team that offered him the largest contract on the spot was, of course, the New York Yankees. So he signs with the Yankees, and he just tears it up in the minor leagues for two seasons, but he's stuck behind Chuck Knobloch, who was at the time a pretty solid player. And the Yankees were winning World Series. They weren't really looking to make changes on their infield. And so they didn't make a change until right before the 2001 playoffs. Knobloch was in a bit of a slump. They called up Soriano um, in 01. He played like half a season in the show, and then he was their starter throughout the postseason. And he just had so many heroic moments in the 2001 postseason. You know, walk off in game five of the ALCS. He hit what he hit what could have been the game-winning home run for the Yankees in the 2001 World Series. Bottom of the eighth inning, Alfonso Soriano hits a home run to put the Yankees up two to one before, of course, Mariano Rivera blows the save in uh, – in, in, you know, historic fashion with, uh, with the Diamondbacks coming back to win the World Series there. But, you know, he, he was, you know, kind of looking to be a postseason hero that year. And then they were wondering if he could, you know, kind of keep that up because he was so good in the postseason. They thought, this guy really has the potential to make special. Can he keep it up? And, of course, he comes into the next season and he goes basically 40-40. He comes one home run shy. He goes 39 home runs and uh, 40 – 39 home runs. 41. 41 steals. Thank you very much. He hits 300. He leads the league in hits. And as you said before, Vic, third place MVP finish. I mean, this is one of the best seasons we've had from a guy who was, you know, at the time, a, you know, 24 year old up and comer. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. They were saying, this is the next future Yankees superstar. You know, they wrote an entire Sports Illustrated article about him. It was a great read about about all, you know, where he came from and his start of his career in Japan and how he was now going to be the next face of the New York Yankees. You know, the Yankees, always looking to get bigger and better, in 2004, traded him to Texas in the uh, trade for Alex Rodriguez. And so Soriano was kind of the centerpiece of that deal. And right when Texas acquired him, and these are the little moments throughout his career where people just kind of, you know, kind of, we're a little bit disillusioned with him. Right when Texas acquired him, they found out that he had actually been lying about his age. So I said that he left Japan when he was 20. I said he went 39-41 when he was 20, when he was 22, when he was 24. All of those years were two years off. He actually left Japan when he was 22, and he actually went uh, almost 40-40 when he was already 26. So that means Texas was not getting the young slugger that they had promised but a 28-year-old slugger. And, you know, in that kind of context, Texas Rangers fans were kind of pissed that they had acquired this guy who they thought was going to be, like, the next face of baseball, and they traded away A-Rod, and what they got was instead a guy who was basically an older or the same age as A-Rod, probably worse. So was it he was lying about his age, or was he he didn't know? Is this, like... No, 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 it was a lying thing. Lying was way more common. Um, I read that a lot of it had to do with like them with with kind of the government cracking down uh, in the wake of two, of nine uh, eleven that they were you know kind of trying to make sure that everyone actually had updated documents and stuff. 
And so, whereas before they kind of could just take story on with his word, when he had to actually start getting the appropriate documents and stuff, it came out that he was he was 28. Texas claimed they knew he was that age, but it, it seems suspect, and their fans were pretty upset about it. And so, you know, there was a lot of criticism there. But, I mean, in Texas, Soriano made two All-Star games. They were a little bit down years, given what he had done in New York, but he was still around 30 home runs, around 30 stolen bases, hit like 280, solid player, silver sluggers. And then he goes to Washington. So he gets traded to Washington um, in the offseason. And he signs the highest arbitration settlement contract of all time. So, I mean, he still, despite the two down years in Texas, despite the age thing, people still regarded Alfonso Soriano six years into his career as one of, like, the greatest players in baseball, if not the best young player in baseball. I mean, when you think of the guys who are breaking the arbitration records now, they're, like, bona fide superstars. I think, um, who was the guy who just broke the arbitration record? Was it um, Arenado? Did Mookie get a big arbitration deal? Uh, it might have been Mookie now. Oh, um, Mookie Betts, yeah, $27 million arbitration dollar record. Yeah, because uh, Arenado signed a full-on extension. He yeah, yeah, I think he got the arbitration, then he signed it. But, yeah. but the point is, you know, people thought of Alfonso Soriano the same way we think of Mookie Betts, which is perennial MVP contender, top five player in baseball, I mean, just a, a, a megastar. And he backs that up in Washington with perhaps the only clean 40-40 season of all time. He hits 46 homers, steals 41 bases, hits 277, finishes sixth in the MVP voting. And I mean, like, obviously some of the other numbers aren't there, which is why he finishes only sixth in the MVP and, you know, why he's always struggled, um, you know, kind of gain that notoriety. But 40-40 is tough. Like, you have to be one of the top speed guys and one of the top power guys. And on top of that, he had 40 doubles. So he went 40-40-40. Yeah. Here's the thing I'm seeing is, like, the year that he almost went 40-40, but he hit 39 home runs, he added 51 doubles. Yeah. That's insane. And yet I look at, like, his slash numbers, and, like, I'm not seeing, like, 1,000 OPS. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the OPSs are very low. And and I was going to get to it later. We can touch on it now. Um, I think this is one of the things that really hurts him in his Hall of Fame case is that despite having good counting stats, like a good average, good home runs, good stolen bases, good RBIs, and good runs scored, his real issue is that he never walked, like ever. Like there are many seasons where he had more stolen bases than walks, which is just (laughs) insane to think about. Like in almost every season, he had more home runs than walks. But the fact that someone would have more steals than walks, especially in you know two thousands baseball, is just ridiculous. And and so that really brings his OBP down, and, and by nature his OPS down. I mean his OBPs are, are typically like twenty points higher than his average, which is just kind of crazy. Um, but so you know Alfonso Soriano goes thirty thirty in you know, goes forty forty in, in two thousand six, and so now he's a thirty year old. But through his age 30 season, he is the fastest player ever to hit 200 home runs and steal 200 bases. He's a 280 hitter with an 860 career OPS. He's made the all-star game every year he's been a full-time starter. It's hard to imagine someone having a better start to their career. Like, I mean, if you had a top prospect, they did that, you would say that's the best possible outcome. How could they not make the Hall of Fame kind of thing? And so... Then you kind of say, okay, well, he must have had a bad decline. And 
after age 30, Soriano was like pretty good. He wasn't outstanding. He signs a huge contract with the Cubs at the time. Eight years, $130 million. I mean, people just think this is crazy money. And he's, I mean, he's still pretty solid for the Cubs each year. He hits, you know, right around 30 home runs. He only hits like 250. The stolen bases kind of dry up. So he's not the same player he used to be, but he's still, you know, fairly solid and putting up numbers that are respectable. I, according to Fangraphs, his highest war season ever was 2007 with the Cubs. And so, you know, he's, he's a, still a solid baseball player. Right? He's not the, the megastar that he used to be, but megastars that become solid players until the age of 38 are usually, you know, still pretty highly regarded. He had 1,000 hits past the age of 30. He had 204 home runs past the age of 30. And so... You know, he, he didn't age super well, but, but I think he aged well enough that you can make a pretty solid case for it. Yeah, I, there's only one full season. It wasn't even that full of a season, but there's only one full season after age 30 where he had um, an OPS plus under 100, which for those that don't know, 100 is league average. So every, every, every year other than that one uh, in terms of full seasons was an above average hitting season. Yeah, he's an above-average major league slugger. So now I'm just going to kind of run through some bigger-time numbers just to kind of, you know, make it impressive. There have only been seven seasons in which a player has had 35 homers, 35 doubles, and 35 seals. And Alfonso Soriano holds three of them, and no one else has done it more than once. So, I mean, he's just the king of the homer double steal. That's Alfonso Soriano. Um, Every single year... From 2002 to 2013, uh, to 2013, he hit over 20 home runs in a season, and most of those seasons were over 30. So that's basically a decade of consistent power production. Throughout his prime, which I kind of considered to be um, 2002 to 2013 again, so that's, again, most of his career. That's like cutting off two years. He averaged 36 home runs a season and 23 stolen bases. And he went, so he went 40-40 once, but he went 30-30 four different times, which is second most only to both Bobby and Barry Bonds, who have each done it five times, which is also insane. Yeah, Bobby, like, pretty much invented that shit. Yeah, I mean, and, and then you get, you get Alfonso Soriano kind of doing, uh, you know, Bonds-esque things. And, you know, that's good. But that's not the real story about Alfonso Soriano. The numbers are impressive. And, and, you know, looking back at what he did, especially early in his career, you know, it was, wow, how, this guy was a star. But the real story about Alfonso Soriano is just how fun of a baseball player he was. I mean, no player in that era of baseball, I would argue, is more iconic than Alfonso Soriano. If, if you were going to build a baseball player in like a, you know, an MLB The Show would be like, you're my career player, You'd model that player after Alfonso Soriano. He's the kid everyone wants to be on the playground. So I am a, I'm a baseball savant by no means. And while I respect analytics, I know little. However, how I judge baseball players, especially of olden times, by olden times, I mean early 2000s, is by how much I've heard of them. Because if I've heard of them and you're not a Philadelphia Philly, that means something. And... My childhood was based off of MLB 2005, the show, on the PSP. And let me tell you, Alfonso Soriano was on every single one of my teams ever, no doubt. 
And so when he was, when this discussion was being had, and I love the statistics, I love everything about it. I, if you had asked me beforehand, is Alfonso Soriano a Hall of Famer? I of course would have said yes, already thinking he was a Hall of Famer. <laughs> For being more of a non-educated baseball fan, I do just love the statistical backup that you're giving. I love that he had changed the rules for the Japanese league. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And I mean, 30, 30 seasons are just epic. And you can't, you can't compete with that, but MLB the show talking about being your ideal player that hit home. That was, that hit deep, deep in the soul. That's the point about Alfonso Soriano that I think is just so interesting though, is that, for a long period of time, 2002, even you can go all the way up to 2013, Alfonso Soriano was a guy who non-baseball fans recognized as being one of the stars of baseball. And the fact that he only put up like 29 career war and was off the Hall of Fame ballot after the first try is crazy. You know, going back to the building a baseball player, Alfonso Soriano had a rocket arm. He was leading the league in outfield assists like almost every season. He had this giant bat. He had the biggest bat in baseball, apparently. His bat was 35 inches, 36 ounces. For comparison, Adam Dunn's bat was 34 inches, 32 ounces. <laughs> so he's got a bat that's an inch longer and four ounces heavier than Adam Dunn's bat. <laughs> Adam Dunn is Goliath compared to Alfonso Soriano, who's like not a small guy, but he's 6'1", 195. That's not Adam Dunn. All of this size talk does not bode well for me, Jason. <laughs> I would prefer the next topic of conversation. I mean, look, but his wins replacement are quite low. And I think that's, that's, that's a number of reasons. I think he was a pretty bad defender. Uh, the metrics seem to be pretty consistent about that. Uh, he had a good arm, but he wasn't very good at catching fly balls. And, um, and he also was not great, a great base runner. Despite stealing 40 bases three different times, despite going 30-30 four times, he also was caught a lot. Like, he'd get caught, like, 15 times a season. He never did a lot of base running. And so, basically, just whenever he got on base, he was going to run. And, and so, but that's, you know, that's really fun. You know, he's batting stance. He crouches all the way down in the box. He's wiggling his bat all the way back and forth. When, I mean, I can still picture Alfonso Soriano in the box. And I can picture his swing and the way he, like, skipped out of the batter's box after a home run and whipped his bat around, you know. It's just, he's an iconic player. His style was iconic. His, you know, he's got a, a, you know, a record that's iconic with the 40-40 season. It, it's just, it's, you know, I kind of think it's all there for him. Yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing when you consider all of that and then you see a war total under 30, it's shocking. It really is shocking to me as a, you know, as someone who grew up with baseball, it was like Alfonso Soriano was, you know, one of the best players. He was one of the household names. To see him, you know, not really be that outstanding a baseball player, you know, from the perspective of modern analytics is, is, is really something else. So, you know, kind of to wrap this up, I have, I have, I think, kind of four main reasons why I don't think Alfonso Soriano is in the Hall of Fame. Um, first of all, the late start. He retired at the age of 38, but he really had like a 10-year prime or 11-year prime because he didn't really start playing until he was 26 because he lied about his age, and he was also stuck in the Yankees' farm system behind other players. So when you get that latest start, you just don't have time to accrue stats. I mean, even if he went 20-20, he 
for, you know, if he started his career at 21 and went 2020 from his age 21 to 26 seasons, he'd be well over 500 home runs and well over like 400 steals. And I think that makes him a shoe in Hall of Fame. Like he just didn't quite get the years to, to, um, to, you know, put those kind of numbers up, but you're talking about him adding prime years, not him adding end of career years. Um, he never walked. So that really hurts his OBP and his OPS, which, you know, brings his numbers down a lot. The fact that someone hits 46 home runs, hits 277 and openly OPS is 911 is kind of ludicrous. And that is because that was the highest walk season of his career. And he only had 67 walks. His terrible defense I mean, it just, it brought his war down every season. He did this thing when he caught fly balls, where he would like kind of do a little skip and a hop. And it's another reason why I love Alfonso Soriano. Every time I'm like catching a routine fly ball, it's fun to do a little skip to the ball. But, um, but he also missed fly balls because of that. And that really uh, uh, missed him. And I think also that people think that his stint in Chicago was much worse than it was. Because um, he signed in Chicago coming off a 40-40 season. And everyone just expected him to be the face of a Cubs turnaround that was going to lead the Cubs back to the World Series. It was a whole big thing. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated again. The article was like, here come the Cubs. It was kind of like that Marlins article when the Marlins got Jose Reyes, they had Ozzy Guillen. It's like almost the same cover. It's funny they even repeated it because it's Lou Pinella and Alfonso Soriano. And like they had this big splashy offseason. They got all these guys. It was like, here comes the Chicago Cubs. They're back and they're – they're ready to contend for a World Series. And he was bad in Chicago. Like, again, we've covered that he was pretty solid. He made two All-Star games. He hit, like, 30 home runs a year. But he wasn't the franchise-saving superstar they were paying him to be. And he was one of the first, like, mega contracts that were given out. And so if you actually look back on it, he is one of the better mega contracts given out. The fact that he was still producing value by age 38 is outstanding. Like, people would love to get that. It's not the Pujols contract. But people were talking about it like it was worse than the Pujols contract, which is crazy. Like, for three years, Cubs fans were like, this guy is weighing the team down. His salary's horrible. We need to get rid of him. It was just, you know, it was a big thing because people were just, you know, expecting way too much from him, and he wasn't quite able to deliver it. Yeah, that SI cover, I, I love those things because they've got so many of those. It reminds me of the, this is go- well, this is going to be fun Lakers cover with, like, Steve Nash and Dwight Howard. And it was certainly not fun. Oh, the SI Covers archive is a great place to go back <laughs> and look. There are so many. Um, just off topic, but adjacent. I went to, when, when, the, when the Eagles assembled their dream team, it was the same day that the Phillies traded for Hunter Pence. And they had a cover of the Philadelphia Daily News that was like, it's a dream teams on it. And it basically contended that now the Eagles and Phillies were Super Bowl and World Series favorites. And, um, and, I bought that, and I bought that newspaper because I was like, this is a historic day for Philadelphia sports. We are the city on the sports landscape. And the Phillies, that trade basically marked the end of their dynasty. And that trade, and that Eagles dream team marked the end of the Andy Reid era. And so it, in fact, marked the end of an era in Philly sports and not the beginning, as I once thought. <laughs> it, it really is incredible how much of a drop-off Jason Babin and Nambi Asamoah took that season. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely used incorrectly by us. The amount 
that they took off. Like Namdi Asima was debatably the best corner for the last five, six years. And Babin was a top DN for the Titans. Come to the Eagles immediately. I was at, I was at camp at the time. We did an offline fantasy draft. I immediately picked up the Eagles defense because someone sent me mail that said that the Eagles signed these people. I dropped my whatever defense I had, picked up the Eagles, and I was like, I, I just want the lead with that defense because they score so many points. Um, and little did I know that would be the worst season of Eagles football I had ever watched in my entire life. Oh, my God. Just terrible. Uh, so to give Alfonso Soriano a Philadelphia connection before I close this out, Alfonso Soriano, when he came to the United States to play baseball, did not know any English. He knew two words. He knew the words baseball and he knew the word ball. So he basically knew one and a half words. Well, base is a different word. By his second training with the Yankees, he was speaking almost perfect English. Do you guys know how he learned English? Too early to watch Always Sunny. I don't know. Was he watching uh, Mad Money? He was watching Sylvester Stallone movies. He became a huge Sly Stallone fan and apparently watched all of his movies. So he watched all the Rockies. He watched Rambo. He watched all of that. I'm not and even sure Sly Stallone is a fluent English speaker. <laughs> language he learned first, but I, the way he talks, I'm not sure he knows it. I know. And so and the fact that Alfonso Soriano learned his English through Sly Stallone is one of the more impressive things. They, they were saying when the media would come up to him after games, he'd be like at his locker with a little TV. He had like a little TV in his locker and he'd have a DVD player. He was always watching a Sylvester Stallone movie after games. you think he was also disappointed by the sequels of Rambo or is that just like an American thing? <laughs> I'm unclear what his takes were on the movies. I would imagine that he's a big fan. I'm sure he realized, just like all of us, that they just shifted to becoming different kinds of movies. Rambo <laughs> First Blood is just an entirely different kind of movie. The yeah. art of film with Alfonso Soriano. <laughs> Maybe actually Sly Stallone's the perfect one because then you learn like how to look like you're speaking English when you're not <laughs> really actually saying anything intelligible. Beautiful. Well hit the left field, out of here, home run, Bobby Abreu, and the Phillies have quickly tied this game and won. So the first official home run at Citizens Bank Park off the bat of Bobby Abreu. I'm going to make the case for Bobby Abreu. So I'll start by saying this. Uh, my parents were, you know, the first generation of our family to come to America from India. So most of my extended family is over back in India. So I only got to see my grandparents a couple times, and I would usually have to go there since I'm young and spry and they're a little older. And so a couple times they were able to come to America. One time my dad's dad uh, came to America and saw us, and we made sure to bring him to a Phillies game when he came here because he came during the summertime. So we got out and we caught a ball game. And my grandpa came on the fateful day of a Bobby Abreu bobblehead giveaway. I don't know whether they called them Bob Dash O'Head, but they certainly could have. And immediately Bobby Abreu became his favorite Philly, his favorite baseball player, perhaps his favorite, you know, non-cricket athlete or American athlete. 
you know, athlete of American sports. I think it's actually kind of fitting because I think Bobby Ray is kind of like an Indian uncle. First off, he looks the part. He looks like he could fit right into my family or any other family. He, kind of, he just looks kind of like an Indian guy. He could be my uncle. I kind of thought Bobby Ray was Indian before I understood that baseball players did not come from India. <laughs> I don't know. If you watch Million Dollar Arm. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I can't. I'm looking at a picture of him right now because I learned from the first part of this that I have to have my Google up and typing just to make sure I'm looking at the statistics of your players. But I cannot say that Bobby Ray looks Indian, at least from the stereotypical sense of the word. I, I'm just saying he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't look, you know, straight off the streets of Mumbai. But if I, if I, I think if I brought him to an Indian wedding, I don't think anyone would be like, you know, asking many questions. So, but here's the thing about, you know, like Indian uncles, like you'll be talking to them and, you know, they'll be full of warmth and levity and they'll be joking around about everything and their jokes will usually be kind of stupid, but they'll, you know, but they'll be laughing the whole time and they'll just be very fun, jolly people. And, you know, you'll, they seem like, you know, those kinds of like just slackers that are, are, are laughing through life all the time. And then you'll ask your mom, you'll be like, what does he do again? And they'll be like, oh, he's an astrophysicist or, you know, oh, he's a doctor or something like that. And I think that that sort of, you know, appearance belying what was actually going on is exactly the way that Bobby Abreu was. He looked like he wasn't giving any effort, you know, when in fact he was a very good fielder when he started out and his fielding sort of declined and that got pinned on him. He looked like he was just passive and he just, wasn't swinging anything when in reality he was very selective he had one of the best batting eyes and he was one of the most disciplined hitters in all of baseball you know he looked temperamental and moody it seemed as though he was giving everybody issues but teammates really did like him and you know managers love to strike up conversations with him and when you think about Bobby Abreu you look at two all-star berths you know you look at a gold glove a silver slugger you know not very impressive but I think he's got one of the most compelling Hall of Fame cases there is. So, you know, let's talk about those two All-Star games that he reached. He didn't reach an All-Star game until he was 30 years old in 2004. And you might be thinking, okay, just like Alfonso Soriano, late bloomer. Not the case. I mean, he broke into the big leagues, uh, got his first cup of coffee when he was 22, uh, and then he had his rookie year after that at age 23. He came to Philly when he was 24. That year, he played 151 games, and he had an OPS above 900. No all-star berth. The next year, he got MVP votes. His OPS plus was 147. He damn near, he was five points off of OPSing 1,000. Again, played over 150 games. Nada in terms of all-star games. Next year, 970 OPS, nothing. Next year, 936, then 934. The next year, 877. And still, no all-star bursts. This whole time, he's playing full seasons. He's not playing any less than 151 games. And he's not making the all-star team. He played for underwhelming and tantalizing Phillies teams. The first Phillies teams that I got attached to, you know, around the 2003 era, Larry Boa manager, just teams that had all this talent, like young Jimmy Rollins, you know, before they traded Kurt Schilling, uh, 
And Pat Burrell, the number one overall pick, Pat the Bat, future Hall of Famer in my mind as well. They had good pitching. They had hitters all around the diamonds. I mean, they had Scott Rowland at one point there. They, uh, you know, Marlon Bird was good. Jim Tomey was my first ever favorite player, but they never made the playoffs. They just, you know, let the Braves waltz in year after year. And it pissed me off. And maybe the biggest victim of that was Bobby Abreu because playing for those teams, he didn't make a single all-star team until he was 30 in 2004. And he made one the next year. And then, you know, he was over 30 and he was still putting up productive seasons, but he was not the same player. He wasn't doing the same thing. He was still, he wasn't a five-tool player like he used to be. So that was it. And he made those two all-star teams and that was like all the world, that was like all like the general baseball world really got to see of Bobby Abreu. He got traded from the Phillies right before they went on a string of five straight division titles. He got a chance to play in October and he did pretty well, you know, uh, when he was uh, with the Yankees after that, um, you know, he had some good series, but still in general, people just didn't really get to see much of, of Bobby Abreu. And so it might surprise people to learn some of his stats. So let's go over some of those stats. For one thing, uh, unlike Alfonso Soriano, wins above replacement was very, very good to our friend Bobby. 60.2 career war, a 41.6 peak, seven-year peak war. So this is, these are like borderline numbers. You know, you want your war to be in the 60s if you're an outfielder, maybe getting up to the 70s to get you to Hall of Fame level. We're talking about seven-year peak war. You know, you want to be a six-win player for seven years, so you want around a 42. His total career war, a little low, but his seven-year peak war is right where you'd want it, at just under 42. I'm using baseball reference, by the way. It's shocking how high his war is. You know, not to belittle Bobby Abreu, but if you look at his baseball reference page next to Alfonso Soriano's and you say, which guy had the 60-war career? No doubt in my mind you go Alfonso Soriano. Yeah. It's like it, it, Bobby Abreu just – he kind of did a Chase Utley where he just did all the little things well. You know, he had very impressive seasons, but he also had a great eye. He played great defense. He was a good base runner. You know, it's just – you start to add those things up. I guess that's how it works out. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's exactly that kind of thing. It's just an aggregate. He just put together year after year solid seasons to the point that from 1998 to 2009, here was his average season. We're talking about 12 straight years. This is his average season. Played 156 games. I think he played over 150 every single year in that stretch. His slash line, the 301 batting average, 406 on base percentage, 497 slugging. Averaged 104 runs scored, 97 RBI, 21 home runs, 39 doubles, 28 stolen bases, 103 walks. He struck out a decent bit. He struck out 122 times, but it all comes down to, over that period of time, a 133 OPS plus. We were tied with a 128 career OPS plus. So the OPS plus over that stretch, you know, a third better that, you know, 33% better than the league average. And we're talking, you know, 
through the heart of the steroid era. You know, 98 to 2009, we're talking about maybe not the heart, but, you know, kind of the tail end, but, you know, a lot, a lot of juiced up sluggers during this time, certainly. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's like a, you know, a basically Bobby Abreu and Mookie Betts of the same career average is, the, you know, through Mookie Betts' early career in Bobby I mean, Burns' prime. Yeah, what more are you looking for than a 300 batting average and 400 on base percentage? <laughs> I mean, nothing. I have a question. Yeah. Was the uh, fan voting still extremely prevalent for all-star games back then? I'm not, I don't know the history behind it. I think so. I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure fan voting was still a thing. I think they still voted on the starters. Yeah, he just wasn't as flashy as everyone else. Like, I'm looking at his stats because I do that now because I'm a professional podcaster. Um, welcome, to, welcome to the big leagues, son. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, his his All Star years, he had thirty home runs, forty steals, hundred five RBIs, and so the next year after everyone's expecting that, he's still like twenty four home runs, bats what two eighty six, and has hundred two RBIs. Like not as great as the year before, even as good as some of his other years. But it was like right off that flashy season that all the fans love. They love homers. They love steals. I mean, who doesn't love dingers? But like that could be a definite, definite reason. The only an issue I see, and maybe you can speak to this, his highest MVP finish was twelve. Yeah, yeah, he really he got MVP votes in um, seven in seven different years. But like you're saying, he was typically finishing around the teens, uh, even as low as, as the 20s sometime. There was one Fangraphs article that I was reading, um, I think about like his 2004 season, uh, which was one of his best and which was his first All-Star year. And they're like, but he did get twice as many points in All-Star voting as Barry Bonds. <laughs> it's like he got six points and Barry Bonds got three. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... It, it's a little more concerning the MVP votes because that's real ba- – that's not fans. That's real baseball people voting. And I am, you know, an uneducated baseball fan who just loves home runs and I, I just action. So, like, I remember Bobby Abreu because I'm a Phillies fan. But, like, was he sexy? No. No, but he didn't do anything. But he articulated in the, in the all-star voting. I mean, not, not the all-star voting, the MVP voting, you know. It should be – I should be wrong. Well, but the thing about MVP voting is it is also a largely team success award. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to knock Bobby Abreu for playing well on bad teams unless you have a historically great Mike Trout level season. It is really hard to win MVP on a non-playoff team. That makes and, sense. and so if Bobby Abreu had the seasons he was having on the 2008 Phillies, he might you know, be an MVP contender. Um, I mean, it is interesting that Bobby Abreu, I mean, the Phillies have a run of MVPs with, with, with uh, Howard and then Rollins, but uh, Abreu, you know, probably deserve more consideration. Yeah, I mean, you're, you mentioned that 12 is his, is his highest MVP finish. That comes at his age 35 season when he's in Anaheim with the Angels on a team that made it to the ALCS. I mean, it's one of his worst seasons, too. Just had it on a, a you know a good team. That yeah. Angels team, by the way, 
uh, random sidebar, I was watching in uh, an old like, MLB Network classic uh, for Jackie Robinson Day, and it was the Angels versus the Yankees. Um, and it was, like, it was this Angels team uh, versus the Yankees with the young Robinson Cano. And I, they had just had like the oldest outfield ever because their outfield was Bobby Abreu in, on this day. It was Bobby Abreu in left, Torrey Hunter in center, and Vlad Guerrero in right. And that is one hell of an outfit. <laughs> like, it's just like in their primes, those are three stellar baseball players, arguably all kind of Hall of Fame cases. Torrey Hunter maybe a little bit less so. And like, but, Vlad Guerrero is one of the first, like, Hall, people that got in that's like mm, that you'd bring up like but it's it's um it they were all like 36 and and so it was just a um it was it was a fun outfield because i was like how the old man outfield hopefully no one breaks their back trying to run down a fly ball that's that what is like when when carl malone and gary payton went to the late Exactly. Yeah. It was all these guys post prime in an Angels out, Angels in the outfield. You know, that is, and that's like the perfect Angels roster as well. Like that. Oh my God! I couldn't think of a more Angels roster than three guys who used to be all stars who are now thirty five, and probably all getting paid. Like, <laughs> all getting paid massive free agent salaries. That that is like the the Vic Ragupathy childhood all stars right there, Vlad. Corey Hunter and Bobby Abreu? All players I know, which is just astounding to me. Plus, the 2009 Angels. <laughs> the team of Sean Figgins. Yeah, no. there you go. I, that was like my, my first years of fantasy baseball. I was just so curious why his name was spelled like that. <laughs> hey, it was his lone all-star season. 42 steals for him. I mean, what <laughs> were his parents thinking? Like, yeah. come on. World Series champion Sean Figgins. That's, I, I know it's Sean, but I, I never say Sean. You can't say Sean. No, it's Sean. It's Sean. like Sean Green. You remember Sean Green? He was on the Jets and the Titans running back. Yeah. Sean Green's about S-H-O-N-N-E, I think. Ooh. Like, what's think, with people on the name Sean? Sean. I think, I think there's Sean Dunstan, I'm pretty sure, was S-H-A-W-O-N. Sean. Like, Sean is, is a name that you can play around with. Despite the fact that um, that you probably shouldn't. So Bobby Abreu's average season for twelve years is like, if if someone just like had that season, it would be it would be monster. It is, and like your average season is a three hundred uh, batting average, four hundred on base, and I think the one thing that you know. Looks it is literally Mookie that's 162 game average. Like, like number for number. Mookie is 301, 374, 27, 26. Yeah. Like, like, I think the one thing that, like, you know, is like, uh, I don't know if I'm, like, with that is 21 home runs. He wasn't a big home run hitter. And for someone that, you know, is, uh, you know, not a small era. guy, you know, 220 pounds, he's six feet flat. Uh, but also plays a corner outfield position, you'd expect a little more power. Obviously, he hit 40 doubles a year, so he was getting extra base hits. But, see, he just didn't try to hit home runs. And I always – and I think about this, like, every day, is how would it be different? How would we look at him differently if, you know, he was part of the launch angle revolution? He needed a 35-ounce bat. That was his real issue. 
Yeah. And like if he, you know, if he went more for more home runs, if he took a dip in doubles maybe and was hitting 25 home runs a year, if he had a couple more 30 home run seasons. I mean, he had, uh, he had, I think, two 30 home run seasons. So I, he, he was, and like he was hitting 20 home runs every year. He was, uh, as, as good a power speed combination as, as you could ask for. He was 30, 30 twice. He had seven straight 20, 20 years. And then he added an eighth when he was 34 years old. You know, he had fine power, but the thing that, like, I think with a normal player, you would say that, you know, what if they were part of the launch angle revolution? What if this, what if that? But it's so much more agonizing with Bobby Abreu because this is the man that provided one of the hallmark live television experiences of my childhood. And that was the 2005 Home Run Derby. Were you guys watching this? I mean, this is a, you know, a well-known performance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a record-setting performance. For, like, obviously, this is before the new format of, you know, you just take as many hacks as you can within, like, three minutes, and you can put up, like, gaudy totals like Vlad and Pete Alonso, like Vladdy Jr. and Pete Alonso did this past year. But this is the really, really hard you get 10 outs and anything you hit that's not a home run with a swing of the bat is an out. That's so tough. Like it's just hard. And Bobby Abreu was able to hit 24 in the first round. 24 would be an insane, 24 would be an awesome total in today's format. And he was able to hit 24. This isn't Josh Hamilton. We're talking about no. It's Bobby Abreu. It's a guy that hits doubles and walks. Yeah. He was a five-tool player. And the 2005 Home Run Derby, as you may remember, is in Comerica Park. Jacob, you and I took a trip to Comerica. That's a big ballpark. I've been playing uh, Comerica as my home stadium for my MLB The Show games when I've been playing online recently. And and I like to say that the people get Comerica because it is so big. It is like 420 to center. It is like 430 to right center. You can hit absolute bombs at Comerica. Like off the bat, you're like, well, shit, that's a homer. And it like doesn't even reach the warning track. I mean, it is so hard. Castellanos hates Comerica. Tough, tough ballpark. I mean, you look at center field and there's like this agonizing – uh, I think like the gate, the fence opens there. It's just this, this agonizing, like little extra bit of distance that just adds insult to injury. Yeah. I mean, Josh Hamilton had his crazy home run derby performance, albeit at Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium. Yeah, exactly. But I'm not going to discredit Josh Hamilton at all. No. He was going third deck at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. I think, cheap shots. I think so, one of those home run no, balls was my cousin. Park adjusted home run derby metrics. You might give it to a great. Oh, yeah. Comerica, like a 10 out format at Comerica, and you're able to club 41 total, not to mention 24 in one round. Tough. Just real tough. And I will say, it wasn't your typical, I do have to note this just because I thought it was really cool. It wasn't your typical, um, you know, home run derby uh, contestants, you know, because they, like the person he beat in the final round was Pudge Rodriguez. Um, you know, it's just not, 
not like totally sluggers because the format that year uh, was altered a little bit for the upcoming inaugural World Baseball Classic. Ah. And, and so what they did was they brought in every contestant from a different country. And so Bobby Bray was representing Venezuela. I'd love to see that in the home run derby now. That's a great way to spice it up. That's fine. Yeah, just in general, it, it would be even better now. It, it, was, it was great then. Um, I, I'd still get flabbergasted at, you know, a 40-plus home run derby performance in Comerica. Like, this guy had real juice. This dude had power. I mean, despite the fact that he has zero statistical bearing to me, good home run derby performances automatically catapult a player on leg up for me. Like, Todd Frazier... When he won that home run derby in Cincinnati, his ranking amongst third basemen to me went up at least three or four spots. If he went from like a you know above average but not great third baseman to like one of the top players in baseball to me, and like he didn't actually do anything except for win a home run derby. But I was like, this guy's the man. And you know, I, I'd imagine I, you know I wasn't really a baseball fan until like 07, 08, so I don't remember this great home run derby except for highlights of it. But um. I'd imagine I feel the same way about Bobby Abreu after watching a performance like that. Yeah, I I was I, I watched the highlights a couple times recently, and you know they're they're great and a, a vintage Chris Berman performance. Back 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 back. You got to say that a lot, probably <laughs> like you know probably in total, 150 backs just dedicated to Bobby Abreu, maybe maybe pushing 200. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, he, like this dude, it, it's tantalizing because like, what if he was used that raw power a little bit more, you know, he can take a dip in, in batting average. He can drop 10 points of his batting average, but you know, he gets his slugging percentage over 500. He gets his home run totals, you know, closer to, to 30. Uh, and that could, that could shake things up a way better for him. I don't know what that would do to like his, his war numbers and stuff like that, but he retired with fewer than 300 home runs. Yeah. I mean, that's like the crazy thing is that like, I mean, again, I'm just thinking about Bobby Ray and Alfonso Soriano and conjecture now, not only because, you know, they were both kind of like 30, 30 guys in the same era. And because I just talked about Alfonso Soriano, but Soriano had like over 400 career home runs. And so the fact that Abreu, you know, only had 286 also shocking to me, especially if you kind of, you know, think that Abreu was twice the player Soriano was over the course of a similarly length career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, so um, I think now the thing that like today we value walks so highly. And so that kind of dings Soriano. We also value the long ball. I mean, chicks and analytics dig the long ball. So it uh, that kind of hurts Bobby Abreu's case, but I don't even think it should. I, you know, I don't think it really, I don't think it really does. You still hit 20 homers a year. I mean, I just, I, I kind of think, uh, when I think of a player comp for, for Bobby Abreu, and this also does happen to be his number one player, or number two player similarity score, um, I, I kind of think of Bernie Williams, who I think you can also make a Hall of Fame case for. Uh, Abreu was better for maybe a little bit longer and maybe just a little bit better, but they're very similar players, I think. Um, and... Bernie Williams has the World Series titles and can't get in the Hall of Fame. So, so to me, I think until Bernie Williams gets in, Abreu's going to have a harder time. Abreu's going to have a really tough time. He, he's just not a name. Like, other than the derby performance for 
people that didn't grow up watching the Phillies, when you say the name Bobby Abreu, and even, you know, people of a certain age or people who don't really care about the home run derby, if you say Bobby Abreu, you know, what comes to mind? It's not like he had those, you know, hop, skip hallmarks like Alfonso Soriano had. He didn't, you know, he just came out and, and played. And, you know, and the things that came out about him, you know, especially when it came to the, the Philly media were pretty negative things. He butted heads with Terry Francona. They talked about that. He hardly swung the bat. He had one of the lowest swing rates and maybe the, the third lowest swing rate, something like that for his, over the course of his career. And people were like, he doesn't swing the bat. He's just, he's passive. When in reality, he was taking pitches better than pretty much anyone in the league. Yeah. I mean, I like, again, just uh, Soriano, I grew up a Philly fan and I couldn't like tell you about what Bob, what it was like to watch Bobby Brady play. Like he is just the kind of guy who came to work every day, did his job unassumingly and played well. I can tell you what it was like to watch Alfonso Soriano play. I remember what it felt like to watch Alfonso Soriano play. I don't feel that way about Bobby Abreu. I think that hurts him. I think to be in the Hall of Fame, you don't you don't just need the numbers. You need the mystique, mm-hmm. you know? And I think I think the numbers guys get in eventually. The numbers guy is kind of like Larry Walker, too. I don't think Larry Walker play had the mystique. But, but, but you know... He, even he had stuff. I mean, he yeah. was just like tough Canadian guy who didn't start playing baseball seriously until his, his hockey career sort of uh, vanished. And like, he was like a, and he had a rocket arm, you know, he got to play in, in cores. So he had, you know, big towering home runs, you know, he got playoff runs with the Cardinals that were big. So can I do a quick rundown, unless you have something you want to share uh, that's major of some things that I've learned about Bobby Abreu since I started Googling him at the start of your, your, your week. Yeah, go ahead. For one, he dated former Miss Universe Alicia Machado, which was a name that jumped off the Wikipedia page to me because um, of Donald Trump um, and that Alicia Machado stuff. And it's the same Alicia Machado. So Bobby Abreu, who knew? Um, he got game. Um, in more ways than in more in more ways than one. Yeah, I think that I think that Bobby Abreu, um, to his credit, was the kind of guy who, you know, thought himself to be on that level even before he even reached an all uh, even though he deserved All Star games and never reached them. I think he thought himself to be on that level. For example, I was reading um, an SI story that mentioned the fact that you know. Everyone in the Phillies locker room just had the classic, you know, metal or folding chair or wood, whatever it was, just the, the folding chair that gets put in their locker, and that's what they sit at typically. But not Bobby Abreu, even as early as, as, as 2001, not Bobby Abreu. No, 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 no. Bobby Abreu got himself a Panasonic EP1010K Great Escape Shiatsu Massage Lounger. Kind of luxury. This is the kind of locker room luxury that the likes of Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., Barry Bonds are relaxing in pre and post game. Bobby Abreu, with this purchase, is obviously implicitly and perhaps explicitly putting himself on that tier. Okay, thing two. I was looking to find Bobby Abreu's nicknames on his baseball reference page, and I was introduced to a different nugget. 
which is that baseball reference includes agent names. Because I read nicknames, and then above, right above that, it says agents. But I kind of got the two mixed up. So I thought his nickname was Peter Greenberg. And I was uh, like, that's a bizarre nickname for, for a Venezuelan man <laughs> to be Bobby Peter Greenberg of Rave. <laughs> but uh, congratulations to Pete Greenberg. He's got himself on a baseball reference page. Um, then, you know, there you go. I'm, I'm never going to unsee that. It's like on baseball reference pages for dead guys where they have like their cemetery locations. I'm now never going to unsee the agents. Uh, so, so Peter Greenberg will always be my first agent sighting. Okay. And then to talk about the nicknames, Vic, I would imagine that you were going to talk about the nicknames. So, I mean, just great, great, great stuff. El Come Dulce, La Leche, <laughs> sweet, sweet milk, you know, sweet food. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the El Come Dulce was apparently the nickname of his father, and he began using the same name. And it is because they loved candy so much. It's the candy eater. I can see that. I, I can definitely see that. He, you just look at him and you, you can tell. You know, that's, that's a guy with a sweet tooth right there. Bobby O'Brien, the candy eater. It's not quite a nickname that strikes fear into the opposition. You know, it's like you've got, like, you, you know, you've got, you've got the machine for Albert Pujols. And you've got the candy eater for, for, for Bobby O'Brien. The big hurt. The candy eater. <laughs> that, uh, that might individually hurt his Hall of Fame case. Like, just <laughs> alone, just that. <laughs> uh, I mean, Vic really, really lit up when we started talking about the Sweet Tooth. Maybe that's why he picked them, just solely based off of the nickname. But that might hurt the Baseball Hall of Fame case. Having a nickname, making him out to be that much of a teddy bear child. <laughs> also on the side with Machado. So who knows? He's like, who cares, who cares if I don't know Bobby Abreu? What's he going to do to me? I'm so glad that Bobby Abreu lasted one year because he got just over 5% of the vote. And really, I just wanted him to stick around on the ballot because I just wanted members of the media to, to tout the Bobby Abreu Hall of Fame case because I assume that you guys are in the same boat as me, whereas we're, like, really looking to at least have, like, our – our great Phillies teams of our childhoods almost validated in a way by getting someone in the Hall of Fame, you know, whether it's Chase Utley or whether it's Jimmy Rollins, whether it's uh, Bobby Abreu and like Roy Halladay, although that was certainly sweet, you know, it, he feels adopted. He's like, he's not the same. It's not the same. He's our adopted. Uh, we, we are going to have an episode in the future, just to prepare everyone out there. We go full Phillies homework. And we break down the Hall of Fame case of uh, Rollins and Utley and, and perhaps Cole Havels or, or Ryan Howard or something like that. Um, Something I will. I think I think I think Utley is a Hall of Famer for sure. I know Vic thinks Rollins is a Hall of Famer. Um, I think you can make a pretty convincing case for Cole Havels uh, that I that I you know we can get into. I believe like I'm I'm just looking something I didn't actually really think about while looking at Bobby Abreu, his first All Star year in 2004. I was six years old. Like, I, lo- I remember Bobby Abreu. His last year as a Philly, I was seven years old. Yeah. I, that's why I am questioning Vic's intense memory of the Bobby Abreu Phillies. I'm telling you, because I don't anything about anything from when I was four. Listen, it was just that I played the, this 2003, like, all-star baseball 
2000, I think the year of it was 2003. It was like called 2003. Oh, yeah. Like MVP Baseball 05 was my shit. With so, like, I, I played that all the time. I played with the Phillies and I got to know the team really well. Like, I had a plaque that I have hanging up right here that like helped me like memorize the names and shit like that. And my brother was a huge sports fan. He was six years older than I was. And so, we yeah. watched a lot of Sports Center. I had absorbed a lot of shit. I just remember the 2003 Phillies are the teams that. Like, before that, I have no memory whatsoever. I mean, the 2000s are when things are starting to form. I was two for most of the season. I just have a hard time believing that I remember anything, which is why I really, you know, get nostalgic about the Pedro Feliz era, not the Placido. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... You know it, what I mean. <laughs> and like I said, I think one thing that really, like, I started off with this, the one thing that really, you know, it's not like I have a lot of, a lot of memories like Jim Tomey was my favorite player I don't have a lot of memories like memories memories of him because you know he was you know around when I was like you're saying like two and three and stuff like that but the thing that really hammered home Bobby Abreu that got me like really into him is that the one time that my grandpa came to visit he we took him to a Bobby Abreu bobblehead giveaway baseball game and Bobby Abreu became his favorite player so I, that was just always something that I carried with me. So Bobby yep. always had a special place in my heart. And the Hall of Fame matters, but the Hall of Fame is not, at the end of the day, what brings value from, you know, enjoying a baseball player. It's if they're a Hall of Famer to you. And Bobby Abreu is a Hall of Famer to you, Vic. And I think he's a Hall of Famer to all of us in Philadelphia. Denzel Washington said it best. Your Hall of Fame in my book. Wow. Oh my gosh. What an amazing sentiment from you two. I'm just uh, want to wrap you up. A catch away from an all-time NFL mark of 21 in one game. Will he get it here? He's got the record. Does he have a first down? He laterals. Still won't be enough. All right. And next up on this very special episode of Toy Cannon Cannon, we're going to hear from our lauded and esteemed guests. And I have heard this is a much-anticipated uh, yeah induction because so, there's been a secret going on multiple weeks now i've had to hear this around my house that there is a secret player that i have not been able to guess vic and i have both placed the guess our guess is the same person and so we will see if we are correct we know the position and we know roughly the era but that is all that we got got to go off of so all we know is that it's a wide receiver from our lifetime correct yeah, so Jacob and I both have guesses, but if you if you have stuff you want to say. Yes, so I decided when I was requested to be a part of this episode, I wanted someone everyone would know, and I did not want anyone to know who it was. So this has been a secret to everyone, and along the way, I would like to know your guesses. However, to start, because you guys have guessed who the same person is, I would like to guess who your guess is. All right. <laughs> My guess for your guess would be Steve Smith Sr. No. You're wrong. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's fine. That's fine. Do you want to hear our guess? No, no. After I read the statistics, then I want to hear your guess. Actually, Noah, can you, can you just like walk out of the room so we can say our guest to the podcast listening audience so that we no, trust our credibility? Although you are right next to me, so I might have to okay. go a little further than right out the room. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, make sure he does like a la, 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 la. Okay, podcast listening world. We believe that his player is Anquan Bolden. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, sir. And I love, I love hearing the Hall of Fame case for him. So I hope this it is. is like, this is like the perfect, he, no one thinks of him as a Hall of Famer, but he kind of is one by the stats. For some yeah. And it's great. He played for the Cardinals. And so, you know, you just did like, no one it's is perfect. more forgettable. It's than perfect. Him. And we're right. You can come back now. Yeah, we got, it's got to be. It's got to be. I am like so confident you don't have it. It's going to be either awesome or terrible in this side segment that we just yeah. had. And I will note, I, I, don't, I can't speak for Jacob, but this was a guess that I, at least I came up with, like, without, like, researching wide receivers. Oh, I came up with it completely independent. I was thinking, I legitimately thought, this is the guy who it probably is. Yeah. And so right. we'll see. We'll see if our, our guts came out right. So, so first and foremost, I wanted to illustrate that this man was not considered a shoe-in Hall of Famer. So I was like scouring Twitter, scouring YouTube, discussing this player and his Hall of Fame status. The only major network or program that picked it up was Skip and Shannon. <laughs> Shannon said he had a 10% chance of making the Hall of Fame. And Skip said he had a 0% chance. And the fellow on YouTube said he had a negative percent chance. So <laughs> fuck that guy, okay? And I'm shocked that it made it to a major network, but they did it because, as you will see further, he had a very unexpected great season later in his career. So here are some of his statistics. So he played from 2006 to 2018. I think we're wrong, Noah. We're wrong. <laughs> All right. Which is unfortunate. <laughs> well, if you're already wrong, then, then that's good for me. Yeah, let's forge ahead. All right. So. All time, he had 970 receptions, which amongst wide receivers is 14th ever. So in front of him, just to put some context around that, were 12 Hall of Famers or shoe-in Hall of Famers and Anquan Bolden. Anquan Bolden was our guess. Okay, that was one of the people that popped into my mind when I thought you guys were thinking. It was that, Steve Smith, and Andre Johnson were my three guests. I didn't think Anquan Bolden was going to make Skip and Shadow. I was gonna say it's a, he's too boring even for Skip and Shannon. I was gonna say the thing that the thing that made me doubt it at first was you said Shannon gave him ten percent, and I feel like Shannon Sharp would have like been like Anquan Bolden, you know, no he's, he's a Hall of Famer. I, I, no <laughs> all right. Um, so yes, he is fourteenth all time in receptions. He had 12,351 career yards, which is 20th all-time amongst wide receivers. Above him are 17 Hall of Famers or Hall of Fame locks. He also had 83 touchdowns during his career, which tied him with Calvin Johnson for 20th most of all time among wide receivers. So he's top 15, top 20, top 20 in all three major statistics for wide receivers all-time. And a little more perspective, there are 29 receivers currently in the Hall of Fame and about two or three, I would say, shoe-ins. So he's greater than about 30 to 35% of already Hall of Famers, statistically speaking. Yeah, so he's not an inner circle Hall of Famer, but he certainly should be in. Correct. So throughout his career, he had six Pro Bowls and one first-team All-Pro, which in this generation was, was pretty hard, I would say. Um, and so this is the, I think this is a very interesting part. I'm going to move on to his records. He has the single game record for most receptions at 21. 
He has the most games ever with 15 or more receptions. Yes, you have your guess already? Right? Yes, but continue. Okay. I'm going to guess. He has the most seasons ever with 100 or more receptions. And it makes sense that he would be on skipping shot. I mean, I've been on my guess. Continue, sorry. I just am excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess. He has six 100 or more yard rece reception seasons. And he is the only ever player, and this is what might give it away. He's the only player ever to have a thousand yards and a Pro Bowl season for four separate teams. Jacob, would you like to guess? I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I forgot your 2018 fact. Yes, he ended his career in 2018. So I had another guy who ended his career in 2015. I'm not even going to talk about it because it was a dumb guess. Oh, wait. I think I know. I think we have the same guess. Is it Wes Welker? Is it Wes Welker? Yeah. Wes Welker was my guess. See, you guys are on one line, and I am just a bull in a china shop wrecking everything. Oh, sorry. Brief Wes Welker interlude. Wes Welker played kicker in 2010. Like I, I remember him making a play kick. or for like a. It, it, he's got he's got his positions listed down the depth chart, listed down his football reference page, and it goes wide receiver, wide receiver, wide receiver, all the way down. And then in 2010, it goes kicker slash wide receiver. I, I do recall him being. I think. I think he kicked a, like an extra point. No, it was a field goal. I think a short. Yeah, he did. In two thousand four, he kicked a field goal. Yeah. Um, he hit the a twenty a twenty five yard a twenty nine yard field goal, and three extra points. So I guess their kicker got hurt, and Wes Welker came in. I've always been a huge Wes Welker fan, and in fact, his numbers did pop up do pop up again in this segment. But I'm gonna keep giving you clues because you're gonna keep having guesses. And it's going to be miraculous. All right, so the first thing I said, he had 13 seasons. So, like, the Hall of Fame case might be that he just accumulated these stats. <clears throat> just over time, he had a lot of, you know, seasons to make all-time numbers. Yeah, but longevity is an important part of football. I agree, but I just want to list some things about the 13 seasons. In his rookie year, he started one game. And in his last two years combined, he had started in seven different games. So eight games over three years. So he really hasn't played since 2016. Yeah, yeah, I would say, but he was in the league for two separate teams in 2017 and 2018. Okay. All right. And over those three seasons, he combined for 600 yards and one touchdown. So he did nothing his last two years because he was playoff hunting for his Hall of Fame resume. And in his first year, he really didn't play at all. So the 10 years that he did play, which is like a normal wide receiver career, he was absolutely absurd. Okay, so the next question might be, and this is where you should get who this guy is, was it because of his quarterback play? I said he was in six different teams. Two of those were at the end of his career. So he had four main teams he played for. So he had to have had some good quarterbacks. His quarterbacks were Ryan Fitzpatrick, who he had a Pro Bowl season with, and debatably the best season of his career. I know who it is. It's not Eric Decker. I know it's not Eric Decker. I know who it is. Okay, good. I got it. Matt Moore, who he had a Pro Bowl with. Chad Henney, and here's where it should come in. Kyle Orton, and it's, then Jake. Yep, yep, yep okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's Brandon Marshall. It's confirmed. It's Brandon, Brandon, Brandon Marshall. Marshall. Top 15 and top 20. Oh, my God. <laughs> No one would ever expect oh, yes. Brandon Marshall as a great top 20, top, 20, top 15. First pod, Thank you. I, really, I do appreciate it. So going over his quarterbacks, yes, he had Eli Manning in 2017 while trying to play off seat. That was the 
that was basically the version of the Eagles dream team where they had Odell, Evan Ingram, Sterling Shepard, Brandon Marshall, Saquon Barkley his first year. It was like, boom, I think it was Saquon. It might have been the, the year before Saquon. But that was like, boom, they're going to have weapons, weapons, weapons. And Eli Manning, horrible. He <laughs> sucks. I hate – well, I respect him for beating the Patriots. I really do. But he really is in the hall of he's okay. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Sidebar. Yeah, sidebar. 2007 and 2011. Who are, you rooting for? Who are you rooting for in those Super Bowls? Um, in the undefeated Patriots season, I was rooting for the Giants. See, I kind of got, like, chirped at school because I was, like, it was second grade, so I wasn't, like, able to, like, be, like, I don't care who wins. You know, I'm watching as a football fan because I was in second grade. I was choosing someone to root for. I rooted for the Patriots. First off, a perfect season is cool. I don't particularly like the Dolphins, so I would like to see a perfect season. Second off, I can't root for the Giants. I just, I just can't. I cannot find any bone in my body that would – be okay with rooting for the Giants, even if it's the Patriots. I don't care. Well, first of all, first of all, I know many Dolphins fans were going to be offended by that statement. And also, as the GM of the Madden Dolphins, I am also very disappointed in that statement. I also I just said that I don't have a particular connection. I don't care about them. I'm kidding. Secondarily, um, I rooted for the Giants because that was the first time that someone explained to me what an underdog was. Like, as silly as sounds i didn't really understand that like some teams were better than other teams i was just like oh some teams win and some teams lose and and that's how sports are and that was when i first realized there was like actual like differences between the quality of teams and there were like underdogs and favorites and i I really grasped that notion of like it's cool that there are underdogs and i want underdogs to win which is why i rooted for the giants i have a even separate thing from that Eagles fan my whole life. The most important and one of the first important football game I ever watched was the Super Bowl in the 0405 season, Eagles Patriots, and I watch us barely lose. And that is when my hatred, absolute hatred for the Patriots, like the Giants, I'm sorry, like have never really like disappointed me as an Eagles fan as much as that moment, that first moment. Sorry, I'm sorry. They, I, that was my first important football game. I was old yeah. enough to watch that. So now I'm gonna now I'm gonna chirp the Giants with my favorite Giants stat. I really did not become a huge football fan until like 2012. Like I watched, I was mostly a baseball fan until 2012, and I started following all the sports. It's so like I knew about Eagles. I watched the Eagles games, but I wasn't like into it until like 2012. For literally the entirety of my football watching life, the Giants have been a non-factor. The, the Giants have beaten the Eagles like twice. Yeah. Started yeah. Off rooting for we the get the Eagles. moment, but it pisses me off because we get the moments, but they have four Lombardi trophies. Like, we I can get the mirror in the Middlelands. I just, like, any time a Giants fan, the Giants start, when the Eagles were horrible at the start of their career, it, up until like the 70s, the Giants ran up a huge margin. They have like a 20-game advantage over the Eagles in their head-to-head record. And in football, overcoming a 20-game deficit is really hard. And over the course of the 2010s, the Eagles have not only made up that deficit, but this year when they swept the Giants, they passed the Giants. The Eagles now have the advantage in the head-to-head. It's unbelievable. (laughs) 
as the much Giants as have blown a twenty-game lead. That's all I'm saying. My favorite, or my favorite, or least favorite Giants stat personally is that they're five and zero in NFC Championship games. They only, they like they reached it five times every single time they've gone to the Super Bowl. Good for the, good for the Giants. I'm just saying, Giants fans. You really let this one slip against the Eagles here. If you they just they break through in certain years, and those years they just go. They just they they make the most of it, and I hate that. Because yeah, they're kind of like the Giants is making MLB, honestly. It's like the even year magic, but a little bit less frequent. Yeah. Well, well, besides my hatred for the Giants, for Brandon Marshall, that was one of the most inconsequential years of his career. What I would like to talk about is because we've clearly seen that having his quarterback or the longevity of his career influencing his stats, there was none of that. I would like to compare him to someone that everyone in our era idolized in Calvin Johnson. Without a doubt, the most dominant wide receiver I've ever watched. Including, I, I love Julio, I love DeAndre Hopkins, Michael Thomas, AB if he wasn't off his rocker. But Calvin Johnson is the most dominant player I have ever watched from the wide receiver position. And he did cut his uh, career short. So he played from the 2007 season to the 2015 season. Throughout those years, 2007 to 2015, two surefire Hall of Famers, Calvin Johnson, Larry Fitzgerald. Absolutely, I would say. That's my opinion. I would say surefire. 100%. Compared to those two, all time in the big three stats, receptions, receiving yards, and receiving touchdowns. Brandon Marshall was first overall in receptions. So this is Calvin Johnson's entire career. And just Brandon Marshall aligned with it. These years, Brandon Marshall led the league in receptions, and he had 123 more than Calvin Johnson. Brandon Marshall was second in the league in receiving yards, first being Calvin Johnson, third being Larry Fitzgerald. Larry Fitzgerald was also third on the receptions list behind Wes Welker, who that's why I said he would appear again. And in terms of touchdowns, Calvin Johnson, again, number one, Brandon Marshall, number two, Larry Fitzgerald, number three. So in all three stats, Brandon Marshall is more than Larry Fitzgerald and barely less than Calvin Johnson, except for receptions, which he dominated. So how big was the difference between one and two in touchdowns over nine seasons? For nine seasons, it was six touchdowns to Calvin, 600 yards to Calvin, 123 receptions to Brandon Marshall. I did not know Brandon Marshall had so many receptions. Like, the fact that he had, like, a lot of 100 reception seasons is crazy to me. I just don't think of him that way. I think of him as kind of more of a big play guy, not a 110s in receptions a season guy. No one appreciates this because the beginning of his career was definitely a rocky, rocky road. Right, like I, I did insult AB for being a little bit of a head case earlier. AB is the only person tied with him in a hundred reception seasons, and might might end that way if since if AB keeps doing what he's doing. But here's where the the Brandon Marshall haters stepped in. All right, so he was arrested for trespassing, resisting arrest, and assaulting an officer in 2004, and then he was arrested again in 2005 for stealing bed sheets from a Burlington coat factory. Um, so while <coughs> a hilarious arrest. I'm gonna go, Jameis Winston's crab leg theft will always go down as the greatest theft in the history of professional football. And now recently, DeAndre Baker's theft might go down as the most 
absurd theft in the uh, in the history of he might not have done it he might not have done it of nfl football but i'll tell you what nothing has brought a smile to my face to the thought of brandon marshall walking into and out of a burlington coat factory with a bundle of bed sheets yeah that it's actually i don't know if it's as entertaining as the next one in 2007 i believe his rookie offseason so after his rookie year his father tried to run him over with this car. Interesting. Another noteworthy thing. And then he was arrested for a DUI during his 2007 season. In 2008, there were three domestic violence reports. This is all before his third season in the league, at which point he had rookie year did nothing and then 2,000-yard seasons. His... After this, he had three domestic violence reports, which resulted in a three-game suspension. And in that year, he still had 1,000 yards, but more on the off-the-field issues. From 2008 on until 2011, there wasn't much. However, this was what stood out to me the most. In the 2011 offseason, so right before the 2011 season, Brandon Marshall was stabbed by his wife which this, the same wife, which all of the domestic violence reports are, have been throughout. And it was proved apparently, I don't want to go into the report, but proved that she was the aggressor in the situation. I don't know what that looks like. Brandon Marshall is 6'5". I don't, I don't know. She stabbed him. You would think, at least I would think. All right. Stabbing is going to have an effect on your career. It has to, statistically speaking. The two years after his stabbing, 1,200 yards, 1,500 yards and 11 touchdowns, 1,300 yards and 12 touchdowns. So I'm not sure the stabbing actually hurt him. I think it helped. One theory, one theory I, I've thought of is that maybe he just like pictured in his mind running away from his wife as he had the ball. <laughs> We've learned from classical course, guns, no, no. From Brandon Marshall, stabbing, that helps your food. And Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce has proved that too. So if you right. want to become great at a sport, get stabbed. H however, a more, I would say, lighthearted way to look at this is that after he was stabbed, he had zero off-the-field issues from that point on till the end of his career. So like I said, it followed up with a 1,200-yard season, 1,500-yard season, 1,300-yard season. It could be that this was the start of his comeback trail. He had no more off the field issues. He was away from his wife. He had all of his demons, as actually Skip Bayless said to their dear, dear friends. He had demons, he conquered them. Chicago, 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 all these great seasons. Mark Trestman comes to town. Mark Trestman year, Brandon Marshall turns 30 years old, has 700 yards in 13 games. Everyone's talking about he's 30, end of his career, get him off like he's done he was you know he had a small comeback after being stabbed he's a head case no one wants him whatever that's a 720 yard season for the bears next season gets signed by the jets the ryan fitzpatrick todd bowles playoff driven jets they fell just short at 10 and 6 Brandon Marshall, with Ryan Fitzpatrick and the Jets, with Todd Bowles, a defensive head coach, has 1,500 yards and 14 touchdowns. I love that Jets team.
That was such a fun team to watch. That was Brandon Marshall, Chris Ivory, Eric Decker. Oh, yeah. You know who was on that team? What's his name? Zach Stacy. He's a oh. for the Rams the like year or two before. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. Studs. Absolute studs. That's one of my favorite non I mean, I want that team to make the playoffs so bad. Occasionally I invest myself in a in a different team that's not the Eagles, just because I just think they're so much fun. That Jets team was one of those teams. The Dolphins team a couple of years later with Tannehill was one of those teams. I, I agree with you. I love, I love Ryan Fitzpatrick. Great. I, I love him to death. Harvard man does he, not act like one. When he put on Deshaun's clothes for that press conference, that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And Deshaun didn't know. That's the best part. If Deshaun knew, yeah, fine, whatever. Deshaun's idea, maybe. Deshaun came out shirtless. He was like, why are you wearing my clothes? And then his response to a reporter, because I just watched this today, they're like, did you borrow all of that from Deshaun? He was like wearing necklaces. Like, he goes, yeah, I borrowed everything but the chest hair. He was a, a phoenix of chest hair popping out, like luxurious. Like, I don't know if you guys – barstool guys but dave portnoy people like kind of point out his like little teeny thing of chest hair looks like a phoenix imagine that but like everywhere just like popping it was un unbelievable and this oh he's love that guy and eric decker he's i mean i hate to say this i love white receivers because like they're so few but i mean he's just so good for like i mean i just I, it, it so why were we thinking Wes Welker was going to be your your make the case? Well, and also Julian Edelman is also Jewish, so that could have even been a, a sneak peek. But um, and Eric Eric Decker's wife is an absolute smoke. I mean, just give props to the guy. I mean, you thought Bobby Abreu got smokes? Hey, Eric Decker locked one up. I wonder how I wonder how Alfonso Soriano was doing. Hey, you know what? You might have to look it up. But here comes the downfall. So after that season, so at 31, as debatably the most impressive season of his career, it's kind of hard to follow that hype up. After that season is when the Skip and Shannon clip came out and people gave him like a 0% chance because of his off-the-field issues. Another issue was that he has never won a playoff game his entire career. He's barely ever been in the playoffs. Yeah, especially in this day and age. Our, it's, it's a quarterback. Like, that's what quarterbacks get judged on. To put that on the whole offense, I mean, if you're going to start Andre Johnson and the Texans, never did squad. They had one year where TJ Yates started a playoff game against the Bengals on a 4-15. No one cared. And then Calvin Johnson, oh, when's the last time the Lions were good? Oh, never. Like, two of the greatest wide receivers ever. You can't judge those people on playoff wins. They're, they're weapons. Great. They can help. Eh, I don't want to hear it. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a, a counterpoint. Please. Most wide receivers do not have a direct impact on their team not making the playoffs. And in 2015, despite Brandon Marshall putting up the insane stats that he had, I'm sure you guys may remember this. Maybe if I jog your memory, you will. Maybe you will not. Brandon Marshall kept the Jets out of the playoffs by costing them a week three win against the Philadelphia Eagles. Here's the thing I will say. Despite that, they could have won week 17 against the Bills and gone in. Oh, I know. 
I'm just saying, horrid. They, they would have beaten that sorry Eagles team if it were not for Brandon Marshall attempting to throw the ball backwards to nobody while getting tackled on a nothing play in the middle of the game right into the arms. Was it Nate Allen? Let me try to find this play. I, I do recall. I, yes, I, I will not say he was the smartest player around. However, this is one of my favorite football blunders of all time. I mean, it is just it, – it's shocking to watch. And this is the kind of thing that never happens to the Eagles. It's the kind of mistake the Eagles always make. But do you remember this, this year's playoffs? Josh Allen, playoff game, does the same thing. Hopes, like, thank God for them it goes out of bounds. I don't know what – like, in the moment, you're like, oh, my God, if I can get this to another player and not go so, down, it could be the best play of all time. So I, so I don't – I'm going to give him some – I actually don't hate the idea. I just don't think you can do it. Uh, one of the things that I always give running back shit for is if you're a running back and you're being, um, and you're being run out of bounds, right, like, like right you run out of bounds behind line of scrimmage, I've never understood why running backs don't just flick the ball out of bounds, right? It's a no-brainer play. But I just think when you're in the moments, it's um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's tough. <laughs> Brandon Marshall, I found it. It took me a minute. He threw the ball off the helmet of Connor Barwin, and then it was recovered by Eagles legend Jordan Hicks, who I, you know, was a big fan of. Oh, huge um, fan. He was beating you were four Eagles around him and no Jets. I mean, it's a terrible play. But the SB Nation article that I just clicked on to get this highlight is, in all caps, Brandon Marshall calls his dumb lateral the worst play in NFL history. And the subhead is, this was a very, very bad idea. That's, that's, I will, you know what? At least he had the self-awareness to say it himself. You know, <laughs> I was just close. trying to make a play. Probably the worst play in NFL history. That shows pre-stab, post-stab Brandon Marshall. Wow. So, that play, he doesn't admit to it. Guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> that's, but that's the play that costs the Jets that game that they lose by a touchdown. If they win that game, the Jets are a playoff football team. Might, so Brandon Marshall directly prevented his team from not making the playoffs. He didn't, you know... I, I, you know what? I, I think receiving yards be damned. I, I think it is, it is too early in the season to say that. However, but what I will say about Brandon Marshall: the last two years of his career, ages thirty-three and thirty-four, he heard the noise. He heard the no playoffs. He heard the you've never really done anything with a good team. So he goes to the Giants. You're supposed to have all the weapons. Giants suck. He goes to the Seahawks in 2018. He's 34 at this point, which is not his best. I mean, he's, he's not – like, I, I compared his stats to Fitz. He was not as what, – what's the word for a lot of stamina? Whatever. He wasn't as longevitous. If that, that's not a word, but he, longevitous, we'll use it. I mean, Seattle, he plays seven games, 11 catches, 130 yards, and a touchdown. And then he decides to finally hang it up. But to quickly summarize, I mean, being top 20 in receiving yards and receiving touchdowns, top 15 in receptions for wide receivers all time, having four individual records and making a Pro Bowl and having a 1,000-yard season with four different franchises, four different quarterbacks, those quarterbacks being Kyle Orton, Jay Cutler, Matt Moore, Chad Henney, Ryan Fitzpatrick, because Chad Henney and uh, Matt Moore cut a season in, in, in two with the Dolphins. 
being able to do that on any team he was on, despite the off the field issues, having cleaned those up, saying, oh, he's done, he's done, he's done, he's going to the Jets, he's done, 1,500 yards. I mean, I think the three seasons, his first, his last two, doom damage. His, statistically speaking, no doubt Hall of Fame. Off the field, I mean, he, I mean, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, a horrible off the field career until 2011 when he was stabbed. Comes back from a stabbing, has a second reckoning, best portion of his career. No more off the field issues. I don't th- and everyone on the Jets thought he was a great teammate. That was a knock on horrible teammate. Jets. Of all places, the Jets love him. And he has 15. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm still on the, uh, the football reference page for this Jets team, just because I, you know, bring, brings back some memories. Um, what an unusual season. They had two guys who had over 1,000 receiving yards and literally nobody else who could catch a football. Like... They, they, had, they had Brandon Marshall, Eric Decker, and the receiver with the next highest number of receptions was 22. You want to you wanna hear how hard – That must be like the highest percentage of receptions to come from two guys on any team, like, ever. Like, they had, they had 362 receptions as a team, and basically 200 of them came from two guys. You know, another interesting thing about a team he was on – the Trestman Chicago Bears, no Alshon, no Alshon yet. That didn't explain the, the downfall. He was the number three receiver. Number one was Martellus Bennett with like 900 yards. Number two is Matt Forte with 800. And Brandon Marshall had 700 and whatever he had, tw- uh, 21. Mark Trestman offense was tight end running back. And oh, maybe I'll use our best player, Brandon Marshall. Like he has been in bad situation after bad situation on and off the field. And despite that, is top 20 in all major stats for any wide receiver ever. I think one of the things that hurts uh, Brandon Marshall, and I didn't quite get to this with Alfonso Soriano, but I think moving teams really does hurt your Hall of Fame resume. I think when you move teams so often, you have to be really, really, really good for people to think of you as a Hall of Famer. Because... I think that it's kind of like one of those arguments that they use when they're like college players shouldn't be paid is that the team you're on helps to build your brand beyond what you're able to do on the field, right? So it's great that Brandon Marshall can put up 1,500 receiving yard seasons, but like when you have a fan base that like adores you and loves you and it's like you're their guy, that really helps to push a narrative, right? And that really helps to build a brand. And, and for Brandon Marshall, like, that is, like, kind of the case in four different cities, but it also means that he doesn't have one city that he's, like, attached to at the hip. If he goes into the Hall of Fame, whose uniform is he wearing? Like, his best season was with the Jets. His worst season was with the Bears, but probably his second two best seasons were Bears. He started his career in Denver, but that's where the off-the-field stuff happened. I, like, it's tough for me to, like, say Brandon Marshall, the great – you know, jet. It's Brandon Marshall, the great journeyman receiver. I understand that. I do. Um, I would say he had large enough chunks with some, like Denver, he was four years and Chicago, he was also four years or no, he was three years. But the thing that happened was the regime change in Denver led, I thought, oh, I can't remember who, what, co- it wasn't John Fox, was it? I don't know. But 
they their whole raw like a lot of the same roster from that Denver team just reunited in Chicago because they had troubles with the ownership. So there was like a big problem there that wasn't necessarily the players, and there's a huge reunion from that Denver team in Chicago. And that's what I, I'm taking this actually from pardon my take Jay Cutler's interview. Um, but that that is my case for Brandon Marshall. I think the other thing is you sort of touched on this, how many fantastic receivers have we seen, you know, in our lifetime. Right. It's a long, long list. And so it makes you wonder, like, which ones are going to make it? Which ones aren't going to make it? Like, you know, when you talk about the Steve Smiths, the Anquan Boldens, you know, the Andre Johnsons, you know, all those guys that were really, really good in just a generation of really good receivers. Yeah. Especially with, I mean, our offense this decade has been juiced. I will say that. However, against the decade, he, he's you know, his only competition is Megatron. You heard it all laid out there. We made the case a little bit everything. Some classic toy cannon cannon crime stories. Uh, a little bit of uh, smoke show wives, but also stats that are just too good to ignore. So good stuff, Noah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. It was a real pleasure. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's episode seven. We'll see you next time on Toy Cannon Cannon.